0: Welcome to Psychedelicast. Hosted by Clinton Cayley, this show is an interview based podcast focused on offering listeners in depth information concerning plant medicines, entheogens, and all subjects tangential to psychedelia. Join us in prying open the third eye. Welcome to Psychedelicast, ladies and gentlemen. Clinton Kaylee here, your constant host. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Psychedelicast. This is going to be episode number... Which episode are we on? Are we on episode 11? I think this is episode 11. I'm checking my own podcast right now to see which episode I'm recording today. Yes, episode 11. This is not a no-trip sitter. We are offering you an interview today with none other than Dr. David Hill. Super excited, this is a fascinating interview with a uh, a prominent psychologist who knows his stuff in the realms of psychedelic integration and various other, uh, psych- he offers various other psychological services. Dr. David Hill, a PsyD, doctor of psychology, is the owner of Discovery Psychological Services. He has worked in a wide variety of settings, including psychiatric hospitals, community clinics, drug treatment clinics, and within the juvenile justice system. Dr. Hill has been trained in psychodynamic, cognitive, behavioral, and various other theories. In addition, his approach is grounded in neuropsychology and modern imaging studies. This allows him to choose from and integrate a wide range of therapeutic approaches when addressing the needs of his patients. It is his belief that the treatment should be tailored specifically to the needs of the patient and that each patient is an expert regarding their lived experience and personal challenges. In his practice, he enjoys working with teens and adults from various cultural and economic backgrounds. He integrates mindfulness and existential approaches into therapy and also enjoys working in transpersonal and spiritual areas. He welcomes members of the LGBT community, kink community, those with alternative religious leanings, and those in non-traditional relationships. Some of the areas of his specialization include depression and anxiety, abuse and neglect, crisis and trauma, grief and bereavement, behavioral difficulties, spiritual emergencies, life transitions, identity development, and individuation, and as well as existential issues. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. David Hill. If yourself or someone else that you know has any project, podcast, business, product, or service that they'd like to promote via Psychedelicast, please reach out to us at our social media taglines. Those are at Psychedelicast on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can email me directly at clintonkaylee at gmail.com. We can discuss promotional packages. We can discuss podcast ad sharing, things like that. Please reach out to me. We are interested in looking for promotions for the show. Thank you. Well, guys, not a whole lot of housekeeping for you today. To be totally honest with you, I've had a rough week. My life has drastically changed since the last time you uh, heard my voice. Um, my partner of roughly three and a half years uh, decided that it was time to end that relationship. Um, so, for any of you that have gone through that before, uh, you already kind of understand what it's like. That's a very long relationship. That's a lot of time and dedication and love and mistakes and. Pain and um, good times and bad times and all that good stuff. uh, That's a lot of time to spend with somebody and for it to be gone just like that. Um, But, you know, um, I'm feeling hopeful about it. I'm feeling uh, excited for the future. I know there are things that I need to work on in myself personally. I'm prepared to undertake those uh, I feel as though I have been undertaking those already, but uh, this has re- given me a renewed motivation to work on those areas of myself that are lacking. So bear with me and send me some good vibes, uh, although I'm feeling very peace at peace about it and I'm feeling very good about it by comparison to previous uh, relationship endings. Uh, four years is a long time to spend with somebody that you love and it's very difficult to let that go, and move on. But that's uh, that's what this psychedelic training is all about. Um, or that's a, a portion of the psychedelic training is learning to let go. So I'm working on that. Um, but you guys, just just vibe out for me. And uh, I appreciate that. And I know that you guys are going to send me your love. Beyond that, continue to engage with us on social media platforms, Instagram and Facebook at psychedeliccast. We like to post a lot of cool stuff there, research, memes, uh, random psychedelia that we find cooler, interesting. All of that can be found at our Facebook pages. Do me another huge favor as you're listening to this podcast, go ahead and subscribe on whichever podcatcher you're using. Drop us a little five-star review rating. That would be great. That helps the show become more visible. We reach more ears. We get to spend more time doing the show. We get We continue to, this allows us to continue to have access to high quality guests, all of that jazz. Before we do our psychedelic interview, let me tell you about some of the guests we have coming up. We have none other than Mr. Joe Moore from Psychedelics Today joining us on the podcast um, on the next non-trip sitter episode. So that'll be... Two weeks from this release date, Joe Moore of Psychedelics Today, a behemoth in the psychedelic podcasting community. Uh, We have an interview scheduled with uh, Icarus480. Um, If you're unfamiliar with Icarus480, you should check out his YouTube channel. This guy is awesome. I'm a huge fan. I've watched all of his YouTube stuff. Uh, I'm interviewing with him tomorrow. I'm super excited about that. With all that being said, why don't we talk some psychedelic news let's do psychedelic news today in psychedelic news uh netflix makes another appearance last week we discussed duncan trussell's magnum opus new series streaming on netflix the midnight gospel fantastic series if you didn't listen to last week's episode you should check that show out very trippy and fun today we're going to talk a little bit more about netflix in an article from forbes an editor's pick written by katie shapiro Uh, this was written on may 1st 2020 and it's entitled netflix and trip take a psychedelic adventure in this star-studded documentary the article begins with a quote from none other than sting the singer sting I don't think psychedelics are the answers to the world's problem, Sting shares in this trailer for the new Netflix documentary entitled Have a Good Trip, Adventures in Psychedelics. But they could be a start to end that quote from Sting. The film, out on May 11th, dives into the history of psychedelics and celebrates their cultural impact while pondering hallucinogens powerful role in treating mental health. A star-studded cast of actors, comedians, and musicians includes Ad Rock, Anthony Bourdain, Bill Kreutzmann, Natasha Leon, and Sarah Silverman recounting their own personal experiences with acid, mushrooms, peyote, and ayahuasca. Nick Offerman narrates, playing a mad scientist, while many of the celebrity trips are reenacted in comedic scripted scenes with trippy animations scattered throughout. Made over the course of a decade by Emmy winner Donick Carey, whose credits include Late Night with David Letterman, The Simpsons, and Parks and Recreation, the idea for his debut documentary was conceived in his hometown of Nantucket Island, following a conversation with Ben Stiller and Fisher Stevens at the 2009 Nantucket Film Festival. Slated to premiere at South by Southwest in March, Netflix Originals has brought it straight to streaming following the film festival's coronavirus cancellation. That's all we're going to offer you from that article uh, by Forbes magazine. The rest is an in-depth Q&A style interview. It's a long article. I would encourage you to go check that article out at Forbes.com. I think you might find that Q&A interesting with the creator of the film. Uh, with all that being said we are definitely looking forward to that documentary but what we're more looking forward to is this discussion with dr david hill let's get into it ladies and gentlemen
1: Today, Doc? Oh, pretty good. Good. Pretty good. It's interesting
0: times, but yeah. Uh, It is. You know, I just did another podcast earlier today, and uh, I had written a long list of questions, kind of like I had sent to you. Well, not a long list, but a list of questions. And myself and this podcast guest had discussed this several weeks ago. And I said, Well, I had written this long thing of questions for you, but the world is a much different place today than it was. When I wrote this a few weeks ago, so we kind of like veered way off of uh, of topic talking about this whole coronavirus thing. So I guess I guess obligatorily we should get that out of the way first. Um, But well, let's let's uh, introduce you and invite you to the show. We have Dr. David Hill with us today of Discovery Psychological Services. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners briefly, or however?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. Um, my name is David Hill. I have a, uh, a PsyD, so um, Doctor of Psychology, a little different from a Ph.D. in that the PsyD has a little more clinical training, whereas the Ph.D. has a little bit more research training. Um, I earned the PsyD at uh, California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. i um, currently a licensed psychologist in private practice in Austin, Texas. Um, I deal with a a number of things, work with a lot of veterans. I do, um, you know, uh, trauma therapies, um, uh, grief, depression, uh, abuse, history. I also do uh, forensic evaluations for the VA and uh, juvenile courts as well. Um, Yeah, and one of the things that makes it relevant to this podcast is I'm one of the few uh, in Austin and in Texas who uh, actively advertise for doing psychedelic integration there.
0: Yeah, and that's how I came across your name, and that is what led us to be speaking today. I actually found your name as a recommendation via the MAPS website, the Multidisciplinary um, Act for the Psychedelic Studies. Um, So you were listed under one of their preferred or... um, one of their encouraged integration coaches. And so you're also a uh, native Texan, or you're local to Texas at this point. So I was like, well, who better to reach out to than you? So glad to have you today. Thanks for doing the show.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for the offer. And uh, MAPS is great. I'm a very long supporter of their work. And uh, they're, they're one of the, the heavy hitters in uh, bringing psychedelic science into a new renaissance.
0: I tend to agree with you on that. Um, so actually, as someone who's considering a further education in psychotherapy myself, I'm curious as to what led you down this path. Um, how did this kind of, how did you get into this line of work? How did this all start for you? Uh,
1: um, specifically uh, doing therapy or uh, more, even more specifically into doing psychedelic therapy.
0: We can start at the therapy in general and, and kind of talk into the, um, where the psychedelics were introduced or either way. Okay.
1: Sure. So, uh, yeah, I'll start off with the, the therapy side. Um, you yeah, know, when I was a, a teenager, I uh, went through a, a bit of a troubled period and uh, as many teens do, I uh, had some issues uh, going on where I wasn't able to wrap my head around life or how to, how to do the whole uh, human thing. Um, so I found myself in group therapy with a bunch of other troubled teams and it was an amazing experience. And, um, the guy who ran the group ended up being a, a mentor for me for many years. And I kind of, you know, uh, went on through that and got into life and, uh, forget all about that. Um, but then later on, um, I, I actually, uh. You know, kind of failed to launch out of high school, tried to go into college and partied my way right out uh, and then found myself flipping burgers and, and uh, slinking back home in chain with my tail between my legs. So I had to kind of figure out what I wanted to do with life and got into IT, did that for about 10 years, realized, man, I really don't like it. Uh, not my thing. Um, and then kind of a mixed blessing that the tech crash came along mm-hmm. and there were no more jobs. So I decided to really do some introspection. And you know, during that 10 years I was doing IT and and uh, even before uh, I'd been in a philosophical and spiritual kind of quest, just trying to learn more about myself, my place in the universe, kind of wrap my head around this whole human thing we're all supposed to be doing, but we're never given a manual for, right?
0: Sure.
1: Um, so uh, that led me to a point where I fairly well integrated myself and i wanted to then give back and help people since i've gotten myself to a place of of understanding and, and manifesting myself pretty well so uh you know i i thought you know i've always been very philosophically oriented but um unfortunately in order to to earn a living as a philosopher you pretty much have to have a phd and go into academia which uh tenure track i don't know if you've notice, but tenure-track jobs are almost none these days. They like to to keep people as adjuncts and and underpaid without uh, without locking them into a particular institution these days. So I decided um, you know that that wasn't going to be my track. But psychology is kind of like applied uh, philosophy in many ways. In fact, psychology grew out of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Um, that's, that kind of brought me to that, and, and I thought I can make a good living doing this by helping people, and it seems to be a um, a good expression of who I am as a person, and uh, nothing better than giving yourself a gift of a career where you can show up every day and just be yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've been working toward that myself in, in, a, in the past few years. Um, I'm actually in emergency medicine. Um, I'm a tech. I'm a CT tech. Um, so my training is, um, clinical and, and uh, right now I work in oh, the emergency. it looks
1: like you locked up there.
0: Say that one more time.
1: it uh, looks like, looks like we locked up there for just a moment.
0: Okay. Yeah. It may glitch in and out. It, um, are you, am I coming through clearly now?
1: Yeah, you sure are. And that's technology. Um, uh, yeah. but thank you for, for doing what you do as a CT tech. I, appreciate uh, I mean, that. you know, you're in the trenches too. do it, you know, uh, helping people out when they badly need to be
0: helped yeah i appreciate that thank you very much and thank you for what you do as well yeah it's getting kind of weird out there right now but uh you know it's it's all gonna be okay we'll touch on that i want to go through some other things before we get locked into that because i do want to touch on the coronavirus and i'm sure you probably have something insightful to say on this at this point but i think everybody probably does so
1: you know yeah but (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I'm fine with just acknowledging that it's a it's a weird time right now. Um, I guess the only thing psych-related that's worth mentioning about it is there's been a lot of advocacy uh, from my profession towards uh, insurance companies and legislators trying to get insurance companies to authorize the use of telehealth so that we're less at risk, our patients are less at risk, and some of the insurance agencies, at least in Texas, are starting to respond, and the governor ordered uh, that any um any of the insurances that are managed by the state have to have to allow it. So it's slowly getting there, but it, it's been a massive um, advocacy effort just very suddenly within the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I was gonna, and that's, I was gonna Yeah, that's just, all I have to say about it really.
0: Right on. Uh, yeah, just a comment on that. I I just did a little piece last week on my episode. I just do like a, kind of a psychedelic news today and I did it on an article about telemedicine and the administration of ketamine um this that and the third not to go into specifics but i was like it's odd how it took something like this but all of a sudden like these things that people were desperately needing like access to telehealth medicine um and things like that all of a sudden just took place like they're starting to instantly kind of allow people to have access to this stuff when they could have moved on this a while back but they didn't (laughs)
1: That's true. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, I've been using telehealth off and on since uh, um, 20, 2011, I think. Um, and, you know, the, the legislature here in Texas uh, always wants to remind us that we're in a mental health crisis in Texas. That's because there aren't that many mental health providers compared to the number of Texans, obviously. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, but all the mental health providers, for the most part, are stationed in the major cities. And if you look at a map of Texas, we're mostly a rural state, and there are huge areas with no mental health care at all. But, you know, people have Wi-Fi and and, uh, a laptop or even a phone. You know, we can do phone sessions or telehealth sessions with people remotely who are hundreds of miles away, still in the state, and needing care. So, you know, uh, hopefully uh, this shift will stick.
0: I hope so too. Um, I you know at this point that's um kind of something that myself and my last guest were talking about is. Hopefully, the things that we're seeing the silver the uh, silver lining at the edges of all this. Hopefully, that they they hold and they come rapidly because that's what we need right now in all of this. Um, if you know. If, right. If, yeah. If indeed. Anything. Um. So we kind of we got through to your to the psychotherapy aspect and kind of the road that led you there. What led you to become interested in specifically, um, helping people to integrate psychedelic experiences?
1: Uh, well, I, have had a ton of psychedelic experiences myself starting at age 16 and, with LSD mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, personally explored, um, a, a lot of the different, um, uh, three letter sort of research chemicals, um, um that came out of Shulgin's lab. I mean, not from him obviously, but through, uh, uh, being a part of the party circuit and uh, burner events and, and things like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I uh, started off as one of those kids who was uh, pretty heavily influenced by uh, Leary, McKenna, and all those guys from the 60s. And uh, for good or for ill, I mean, there's some ups and some downs for, for all of those guys. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to. You know, as I kind of pointed out, my whole gig back then was exploring consciousness. I didn't know who I was or how I was or why I was. So um seemed like psychedelics were a deep dive into that. Once I uh, tried it for the first time, I was like, oh, wow, this is actually a way to really um, get deep into understanding consciousness. Yeah. So that got me really interested. And that, that was, you know, I've had many. i had many transformative experiences over my lifetime, uh, with and without psychedelics. but. Um, you know, even my choice of, of grad schools, I was accepted into a few different grad schools out of undergrad, and, uh, I chose California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, specifically because they have a, or had a program that was heavily rooted in transpersonal psychology, which uh, has kind of a focus on the spiritual. And, um, you know, they had a, at, at the time, I don't know if they still have it, but at the time they had, um, uh. They had a scholarship so that if you were doing your dissertation on psychedelic studies in particular, they had a scholarship that would pay out up to $5,000 to help fund the, the research. And so um, in the early days, well, I guess not early, days, but in you know, several of the principal investigators of the studies at uh, MAPS, uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, they that they're doing um, came from my program at CIIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's been a good synergy and if you talk to Rick Doblin and you mention CIIS, he'll be like, oh yeah, that's a great spot. A lot of good folks come out of there. So it's pretty, um, you know, th- there's long been a link between uh, those two institutions. But, you know, interestingly CIIS is kind of the, uh, the Cide program that I was in was kind of their mainstream program, right? We were considered the The sort of stodgy folks in the in the progressive institution because we were uh, you know uh american uh, psychological association accredited above board with everything um just very sort of classic uh education that you would get any institution only had uh, a particular flavor to it Uh so um you know that that uh you know uh stan groff uh, Stanislav Grof, who was one of the uh, early LSD researchers, he's there uh, as a faculty member at CIS. I, I was able to uh, take a couple classes with him um, you know, and hear about some of his early experiences. He was one of the guys with, um, with Lily doing the, uh, the float tank experiments, uh-huh. and they do LSD in the float tanks all day long.
0: Wow.
1: Uh, pretty outrageous uh, experiences yeah. uh, from what I understand. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that whole, you know, I've I've heard the float tank thing before and I'm like, man, I've never actually been in a float tank myself. Obviously, I've under, oh. I've I've obviously undergone several intense psychedelic experiences, but the thought of being inside a float tank while undergoing a psychedelic experience is very daunting to me. I don't know, it's like it just seems very, very intense.
1: Yeah, you know, I definitely recommend trying the float tank thing out. They're pretty mainstream now. You know, you see you had to find somebody who just had one. I was lucky enough to have some friends who built their own. Um, but uh, now there's float tank centers, and I know Houston's got to have a ton of them, probably some right, right near you. Um, but, yeah, that, that that's worth doing. Now, what really trips me out are the people who are uh, volunteering for studies where, where they'll take, like, LSD or MDMA and get put in MRI machines. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> nuts.
0: No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, you got to be some kind of a psychedelic warrior for that. No, I don't want to do that either. <laughs>
1: yeah, bless them, bless them for doing it. They're progressing science, but oh my god, that sounds horrific.
0: <laughs> yeah, you got to have uh, some intestinal fortitude to uh, to accept that mission. And yes, God bless them for that. Um, yeah, there yeah. are there are definitely some float tank places around here, and I've been meaning it's been on my list of. Uh, Things to try out. I just haven't kind of gotten to it yet. But uh, how is that? Is that uh, what is that? What is Uh, that good for? It's
1: interesting, and and it is. You know, um, there are many different ways to to create an alteration in consciousness. I mean, if you think about it, throughout the day we're going from trance state to trance state throughout the day. Even if you're driving your car uh, and you're kind of lost in thought. You're not immediately focused on the task of driving your car. You might show up and you're like, "Man, I don't even remember half that drive" because you were lost in thought. Mm-hmm. You're in a trance state. So we we are in altered states of consciousness most of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways such as pranayama, like um, the holotropic breath work that uh, Stanislav Grof uh, created, um, and and classical uh, yogic pranayama that can have some profound changes in consciousness. Now float tanks do that too, but they do an interesting thing. So um, the water is room temperature heavily salted, so it's salinated. So much like the Dead Sea, you just kind of float. Mm -hmm. And um, the modern float tanks, you can add, you know, you can pipe music in or have sort of LED lights, but classically it would be just dark and absolutely silent. And just you there floating in this space, that's uh, the temperature of your body. And it feels like you know, you extend out into the universe because there's no limits to your body after a while. And you get into this deep theta brainwave state. A theta state is a state of absolute relax- re- relaxation just before sleep. Um, this is the way, uh, this is where the practitioners of Yoga Nidra want you to get the yoga of sleep. It gets you profoundly relaxed. Uh, the problem is, it's easy to fall asleep from there, but in a float tank, you're able to sustain it and so if you sustain it after a while there's no sensory input and you're so used to it um, that it takes a while to orient to it but the more you do it the, the quicker you snap in just kind of like meditation the, the more you do it the quicker you get into a deep state and basically um, you can get into a, a dreamlike state where you're having visions and waking dreams in in the float tank it can get pretty interesting
0: in yeah it, that's for sure I've always heard that and uh, that's funny that you mentioned that. I was just showing my significant other uh, just a very simple breathing technique from like from Wim Hof. I think it's like his uh-huh. it's, just, it's his dragon's breath. So I was like she she woke up and she was feeling kind of anxious and I said, Well, hey, why don't you try out this breathing technique that I've learned from uh, this guy Wim Hof? And I do it pretty regularly and I was literally just showing her how to do it and I like accidentally had this very very intense experience I was like overcome with emotion I started crying like right there on the spot she's like wow I was like yeah I did I did not expect for that to happen like I was just trying to uh show her the way that the technique is done and I ended up having this like really intense moment and uh so she was like yeah I think I will try that
1: <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, so, uh, cool. Uh, I, I had a patient who would use a Wim Hof breathing techniques to help manage his his chronic anxiety, and it worked really well for
0: him. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm not a particularly anxious person, but um, I'd really like the technique. It seems to help me kind of center and ground throughout the day, and it's really quick and simple to do. I'm not by any stretch um, knowledgeable in holotropic breath breathing techniques either, but I found that that one can actually achieve in the right mindset or maybe lack thereof a pretty profound, um, moments, you know, um, mm-hmm. let's see. Um, so the landscape surrounding psychedelics in America seems to be rapidly changing, particularly in a medicinal aspect. Um, and within the psychotherapeutical world, where do you see this process heading and which direction are you hoping to see it move in? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm
1: optimistically I guess cautiously optimistic is the, the term for it sure. um, you know I was at a uh, American Psychological Association meeting in 2007 where some of the guys from Johns Hopkins presented their uh, research on psilocybin mushrooms and they had basically read um, on the classic Good Friday experiment uh, which is for some, if some of your listeners aren't aware, it was um, – I, I, was it um, – I believe it may have been some of the early Leary experiments uh, in Harvard where they basically had a bunch of people who were um, – who had never taken these psychedelics before, uh, dosed them with mushrooms and sent them to church on Good Friday to have the, the sermon. You know, they're completely naive, no, no psychedelic experiences at all. Mm-hmm. and they all reported it was one of the uh the most profound spiritual experiences of their life mm-hmm. so uh the john Hopkins folks um when they were setting off uh to start doing psychedelic research at their institution that was one of the first things that they recreated a classic experiment pretty easy to recreate um you just find people who've never done shrooms before and yeah. send them you know send them to church uh sure. and so they did that, and they had very similar results to the, the early 60s um, experiments, and uh, they had taught, they had developed a scale to measure um, spiritual experience, and they it rated for almost everybody as one of the highest spiritual experiences in their life. And then at like, I think six months and 12 months, they did some follow-up testing. I, I can't quite recall the, the link, but that's good enough for conversation. Sure. Um, And for the vast majority of them, that remained, over time, persistently, one of the most profound spiritual experiences that they've ever had. Mm -hmm. Now, while I was there, and this is the interesting part, um, a man, I forget his name, but he identified himself as an ex-director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Mm -hmm. He stood up, and he was there, obviously, with the Johns Hopkins guys, and he said how excited he was for modern psychedelic research to be happening, because it's actual science. And he said, look, guys, we stopped the research in the 60s, not because it wasn't promising, but because the researchers got to be a part of the party. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing science anymore. They were, they were politically advocating. That's why I say kind of with some of those early 60s psychedelic gurus, there was a, a negative side to it, too. I mean, we could have uh, psychedelic therapies right now and have had it for decades if they had not uh, gotten political with it and they had stuck just with the science. Yeah. that's why it's important for the scientists to stick just to the science so um with that i mean that that shocked me at the time i you know i always grew up as a kind of a party kid and just thinking you know hey these guys are they don't they don't get it you know they're they're whatever it's the man you know my, now my mid-40s I, as a as a doctor who who works in the court system? Sometimes I'm the man. So yeah. <laughs> what, what goes around comes around, right?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but uh, but this guy who was the director of NIDA is saying, "No, man, this is, this is actually promising stuff. I'm excited. Let's keep this going." That excited me. And you know, talking to Rick Doblin a number of times. Anyone who's seen him talk, man, you walk out inspired. Going to a MAPS conference. Uh, we had one in November here in Austin, and uh, you know the the mood. I guess you could describe as celebratory yeah, uh, because this is actually happening. And those of us who know that profound experiences are possible through psychedelics are thrilled that it's happening. And uh, there's a lot to talk about mainstreaming it, right? Because we need these to be mainstream therapies. People who have done psychedelics know how profound it can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody, I don't remember who it was. There was a quote uh, saying that, you know, a, a good dose of psychedelics can be like, 10 years of therapy and seriously people can go so deep and so profoundly deep on a psychedelic, in the psychedelic state that a lot of their, their barriers, the things that they fear that keep them from going deep are out of the way. So they're able to poke around and explore these nooks and crannies of their psyche that they've never had the courage or, or the knowledge or the ability to do so before. And then, you know, it, if there's some issues, you can process that in therapy. Now. Uh, some of the research coming out from MAPS and Johns Hopkins and some of the private uh, and other institutions out there uh, is really promising. Um, some of them have um, uh, are, are being fast tracked by the FDA, having breakthrough therapy designation. The one I I follow the most, since I work so much with trauma and veterans, is the uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I know MDMA is not a classic psychedelic. It's, a, a, uh, it's an empathogen, I've heard it called, which is a, a good term for it, right? Yeah. Uh, but still, it's a, a very altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, I've been following that for many years. It seems very promising. It has breakthrough designation by the, the FDA, and um, it's now moved into uh, expanded access. So there are additional clinics around the U.S. that are getting ramped up to be able to provide these therapies. Mm-hmm. So the FDA is going ahead with it. Um, research so far uh, with that particular investigation shows that um, in the, the phase two trials, I think, uh, I think it was two out of every three, uh person with PTSD was functionally cured. And then mm-hmm. like a year post-test, they remained functionally cured. Um, the others, uh, either dropped out of the study or they, um, they had a, a reduction in symptoms, but still technically met criteria for mild PTSD. So if the worst thing that can happen is you're decreasing symptom expression for something that's notoriously difficult to treat, I'll take that on yeah. um, best case. Um, you know, there was at the MAPS conference in Austin, there were two veterans who stood up. One was a, um. Uh, a, a retired guy or an a, a honorably discharged uh, member of the Army and he had served a couple combat tours. Um, his PTSD was so bad, he attempted suicide by firearm twice, both times a gun jail. Wow. Another guy was a uh, retired Navy SEAL who had uh, over seven combat tours and um, both of them were absolutely shattered. I watched them calm, relaxed, laughing on a stage with hundreds of people uh, looking at them and, and uh, asking them questions under hot, bright lights. That's not something that happens to people who are traumatized. It was freaking miraculous. Wow. Uh, Aubrey Marcus, uh, I i uh, was at a front maps fundraiser at his place, I guess, a couple of years now. He described it as life-changing, yeah. and, and that really sticks with me because it is life-changing. And some of these psychedelic therapies, um, you know, you have LSD for um, – uh, to reduce anxiety of um, death anxiety for terminal cancer patients, mm-hmm. that's a kindness. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. That's yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's uh, the research out there is fascinating. I recommend people go to maps.org and um, you can sign up for their newsletter. They send out a a monthly newsletter and it lets you know kind of how the research is progressing. And you can drill down into that if you want to and keep current. Uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff.
0: Absolutely. So,
1: yeah, I guess cautiously optimistic, because I think it's heading in a good direction. It's being mainstreamed, and I think people are, heck, Sanjay Gupta has talked about it, right? He's yeah. advocating uh, marijuana use, um, uh, marijuana legalization, because of all the, the benefits to it. So um, I, I think it's heading in a good place uh but it doesn't take much for there's taboos associated with expanding consciousness like this right sure so there's it it won't take much to explode this whole renaissance and and make it just make it crumble uh if we're not careful so we have to keep everything absolutely above board
0: sure and that uh that point right there can kind of help us segue into the next thing i wanted to talk about um which this is a very common motif um, found within the, I guess, psychedelic community is the idea that psychedelics are not for everyone. Uh, is this an accurate statement, and can you expound on this concept um, of psychedelics not being meant for everybody to use?
1: Yeah, and, and you know I'll, I'll take this from a couple different uh, directions. One, I know it's contraindicated for people with a family history of psychosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concern is that a large dose of psych- uh, um of psychedelic may possibly uh, bring on psychosis in somebody who has a genetic predisposition that way. Uh, so before, before you take a trip, uh, check into your family history. Find out if you had uh, an uncle or an aunt or, or mom or dad or grandma or somebody was institutionalized. Uh, if that's the case, uh, you may want to try something else. Uh, so there's a, I mean, there's a psychiatric uh, um, reason for that mm-hmm. but uh, also you know one of my I guess my earliest clinical experience was working at a methadone clinic in San Francisco in the tenderloin desk district now that's where Chris Rock said he'd never seen crack smoke so casually in his life I and mean, they're smoking rock like it's cigarettes on the street there it's, it's pretty pretty rough
0: it's called the tenderloin
1: um, district yeah the tenderloin district look it up but uh, he said <laughs> that loin ain't so tender yeah and that's no <laughs> Um but, yes, it's, it's, it's a pretty gnarly area, um, and I worked in a methadone clinic there. And so one of the things I really noticed there is that there weren't many psychedelic users, right? A lot of these people had traumatic backgrounds or whatever, and they would either drink a lot. You know, they're using um, opiates, obviously, or they wouldn't be there. They'd use um, benzodiazepines uh, to kind of blot things out. Some of them would use crack or meth because they wanted to kind of get a ride up um but what i really discovered was it's sort of like a you know different stuff people are kind of drawn to different substances um so like the benzos um you know if somebody has a real bad trauma background and they just don't want to think about something because their waking experience is too painful to to really get into then um you know they're likely to want to blot out their consciousness uh same with drinking themselves into a stupor you know Shoot and smack, whatever. As long as it takes everything away, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people with speed—they want that rush. They want—they want, they want um, you know, more aggression, more adrenaline. They just want to push it. Um, but psychedelics, psychedelic people who take psychedelics tend to be really introspective, really psychologically minded. They want to explore the, themselves and their place in the universe. Uh, tend to be philosophically, existentially minded. Uh, People who, who are exploring psychedelics uh, tend to be absolutely delightful to work with, uh, at least from my perspective, because most people are, are really highly functioning, unlike some of the crackheads who I've worked with, you know, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the whole down jobs, some of them are, are doctors, lawyers, uh, master's degrees, you know, uh, working in business. And they're just exploring consciousness and, and uh, having a, a really fascinating time doing it. And sometimes um, sometimes things don't quite sit well. And we can talk about that a little bit more. But I think to, to answer your question, I think people are sort of drawn to certain substances based on their background, what's happened in their life, and based on on their overall psychology.
0: Sure. Um, so that'll kind of move us into our next question, which I'll kind of, um, set up through my own, the lens of my own experience is that, um, you know, this is a, another common motif. Well, maybe not, not quite so common, um, but another motif that I've, uh, used and heard in the psychedelic culture is the idea that there are no bad trips. Um, I personally hold this to be true. Um, I've had several intense psychedelic experiences that led into, um, extremely difficult or challenging situations, portions of the experience where I was very frightened, very ang- anxiety ridden, all these different, um, gamut of emotions can be experienced during a psychedelic experience and they can be extremely heightened. Anybody with just a cursory knowledge or use of them understands that, um, I've kind of tried to get to the point, especially in my psychedelic experiences and use, To where I can kind of try to look at these things that may be difficult or scary in a new lens or through a new lens. So as opposed to thinking of things in like a binary concept, conceptualization, like duality. um, This is good. This is bad. This is scary. This is peaceful. um, I've kind of tried to change the very way that I look at those things. And the actual psychedelic experience has kind of led me to, to view things in that way because... Sometimes you can get to these points that are so overly intense and so scary. um, Scary is just uh, the only way to describe that emotion is that that emotion of fear where you want you want either to fight the experience or to escape the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're constantly put if you're if you're continuously putting yourself in this um, in this moment where you have to choose to surrender or to let go of your fears, um, it becomes easier to do that. Um, in your everyday life, when you're faced with things that are cause you fear, such as the moment that we fu- in time that we find ourselves in right now, you know I'm sure a lot of people are undergoing a lot of different anxieties and fears um, mm-hmm. around this, as yourself and myself may be undergoing. Um, these types of fears and these types of difficult situations in life and in the psychedelic experience, could these be due to improper set, setting, and finally integration? Um, how can we mitigate these difficult or challenging experiences we might undergo in the psychedelic realm?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, so that, that um, I really like what you had to say about uh, that them being, reframing it as difficult and not bad, right? The binary doesn't serve you well in a psychedelic state because it's transrational, right? Our, our apparently binary world, which is actually not really binary, um, but it appears that way, uh, that melts away and you're stuck in, in something very different. Uh, and uh, But I think early on, uh, it's easy when you're used to thinking only in the, that binary perspective of seeing something, oh, it's not a fun experience, or, or it's challenging. Oh, it's one of the, the darker, scarier sort of experiences. That must be bad. It's not necessarily bad. I would say that um, the most challenging psychedelic experiences I've had in my life have been some of the ones I've, I've had the most growth from. And I think you're exactly right. Murray was right when he called that out about set and setting. Um, set and setting, of course, uh, being mindset. So you have to have the right mindset going into it because the psychedelic is only going to magnify what's already there, right? Um, and setting, the physical setting, because it needs to be somewhere where you feel comfortable, it's somewhere that you don't feel safe, where you're feeling a little background anxiety. Well, all that's going to be massively ma- magnified as well, and that can suck. Um, you know, I guess... One one thing to look out for, though, um, I'll share an experience I had um, a few years ago. My my last remaining grandparents, they both died within two months of each other, and um, you know I, I, I grieved them a bit, and uh, but then I uh, had a psychedelic experience too soon, uh, and I thought I was in no case space for it, and I did more than I customarily do, uh, which is a bad decision and uh, in retrospect pretty pretty clear i was setting myself up right uh and so about an hour or so in hour and a half i started having some real problems and some real distress and i knew oh no this this looks like this is one of those really really tough times and um i i found myself you know really sobbing in the bathroom because I had all this unprocessed grief that had been behind this dam that my psychological defenses were holding back quite quite too well, actually, mm-hmm. far too well. Uh, in a psychedelic experience, your psychological defenses aren't online in the same way that, that they are when you're, when you're sober and in your normal, rational state of mind. So, yeah, that, that stuff hit me, and it felt like I was in there for like three days, and I came out, and I was like, oh, my God, this is... This is horrible, this is so bad. And I said I at my wife, I said, What what time is it? She told me the time. It'd been like fifteen minutes. I felt like I was in there for three days. I am like, <laughs> Oh my God, it's gonna be one of those nights. So yeah. it was a man, it was a horrible experience. But I'll I'll tell you it was horrible and, and at times horrifying. Uh, but it's what I needed. And after that I actually spent a, a lot of time um, on the integration phase, because I sucker-punched myself. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a professional psychologist. I'm like, you, know, like uh, you should know better, but just because you have credentials doesn't mean like, there's a part of your psychology that's not going to get thrown for a loop sometimes, too. Sure. And I kind of share this, because I, I spent a lot of time in the integration phase, and that's where that became important. Because um, while it was a deeply unpleasant very difficult experience that some people would call a so-called bad trip. Um, it was a massive growth experience that has fueled me uh, since that time. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time in contemplation meditation and in prayer. And I had some profound spiritual experiences that occurred due to that. Um, and I, I experienced a sense of love and connection with my grandparents. That I don't think I ever would have been able to experience had I not had such a difficult psychedelic experience. Now, I'm not saying in a million years I would have. If I knew that was going to be the outcome, that I would have done that. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. Absolutely would not have. I would, have, you know, I would have reached out to somebody I know and got some damn grief therapy, like I should have done in the first place. Uh, but you know, sometimes you can outsmart yourself and cause yourself a bit of a mischief.
0: Dude, yeah, that sounds like a rough one. Um, you know, I kind of have an um, analogous story, but on the other end of the spectrum, just as a brief aside, um, I went to Peru last year in October, um, to drink ayahuasca for the first time. And I did two, two ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, the first night was kind of went the way they said it was going to go. It was extremely intense. It was extremely, um, the best way I can describe it as a very violent experience. Um, but, not be- not negative for me there were some v- challenging parts just on the level of intensity that it was um but the second night was a completely different animal and it was odd because I didn't see this coming at all both of my grandmothers had passed away within the year previous to me drinking ayahuasca um and so I had done a lot of research on ayahuasca as well. And I had read all the kind of um, alliteration or the allusions to grandmother ayahuasca, who's like this plant spirit, who's this often maternal figure, who can be either very strict and stern or very compassionate and caring. So, you know, that, that knowledge may have colored the um, experience slightly, but I had this very profound and beautiful experience of, release of this kind of grief that I was holding, um, compartmentalized with my, you know, uh, surrounding the death of both my grandmothers. You know, there's a lot of things that we carry there. Like, uh, some of the things I was feeling was like, I wasn't present enough in their lives near the end. Um, guilt for various things in the past that had transpired between us. Um, and a, a lot of different things obviously around grandparents passing that, you know, are pretty commonplace, uh, emotions for that time. But I didn't realize that I was gonna, that that door was going to open in me. And I hadn't even like, you know, I was, I had kind of intuited several major themes that were going to be involved in my experience that were, but that wasn't one of them. Um, and it was just this really, really beautiful, compassionate healing experience, um, of where I was able to kind of sit with both of my my deceased grandmothers in the what seemed to be the presence of this grandmother ayahuasca entity and to commune with like all three of these feminine maternal spirits Um, and it was really mind-blowing because prior to that I would have considered that to be like very woo-woo or like you know like prior to my ayahuasca experience my psychedelic Journey had been more cerebrally based and kind of brain candy and psychonautic and not so spiritual. And then I I drank the ayahuasca and it was like such an undeniably mystical experience by comparison to my other experiences. I was like, you know, this was something completely other than what I had had ever experienced before. But um, I had a similar. I had an experience where I was able to say goodbye to both of my grandmothers and have this really deep, beautiful sense of closure um, that I had no idea that I needed because I was busy. I just, they passed away. I had to keep moving and, you know, life goes on and that's kind of how I put it in that box and I didn't, I hadn't opened that box back up yet and it was like, surprise, we're going to open up this box and I was like, oh wow, I did not know that was coming but I, and I really needed it, you know.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, ayahuasca is like that. It sinuates itself in deep, and it's very earthy. And if you're doing it in Peru, then uh, you would have been uh, in a in a circle that was uh, a holding environment that was contained by a shaman. Mm-hmm. And the, the shaman do did they did they do the song singing to you and sure. you know, fanning the tobacco into your face? Whatever. They are so amazingly attuned and good at monitoring the energy Mm -hmm. to allow you to do the work that you need to do. And if you're distressed, allow you that if you need it or help you come back to a place of calm if you need it. Those, the shaman, uh, the Peruvian shamans and those trained by them are exquisitely good at that holding environment. I mean, that's, that makes so much different. And that's the setting, right? Yeah. Uh, And they're helping you manage the Mm set. So, yeah. Yeah. In retrospect, uh, I would have much rather had a, an ayahuasca experience like yours. Yeah, absolutely.
0: i I I just lost you there for a second, but yeah, man, it was. And you know the the, the first one wasn't like that. It wasn't this like. Uh, there were moments of beauty and extreme, intense moments of um, peace and oneness, and pretty much every every um, bizarre uh, psychedelic motif you want to name. I underwent them all like tel- telepathy. Um, you know, there was a moment where the shaman was basically protecting me from these things that people were purging. Like I was watching the, I didn't actually purge the first, I didn't purge either night actually. Um, so my experience may have been particularly potent because I didn't vomit any, uh, of the ayahuasca backup, but I was watching people purge around me and I'm seeing this like blackness come out of them and uh, and then it like comes up out of their buckets and it's like flying around the, the Maloka, and oh, wow. this scares the living shit out of me because I'm like okay this is trauma that's being released from people's souls then it's like this is evil you know it's this darkness various different forms of it and it notices me noticing it and then it like kind of starts to encroach on me. Um, because initially I feel safe. I feel like, well, I didn't purge any of this. So it's, it's not gonna, I'm not involved in this. I'm just observing. And then it kind of noticed that I noticed. So the shaman basically protected me. He used this, uh, he, they used this sound in ceremony. It's like a, it's like a sit sound And it's it's a really powerful sound, and these things are approaching me. These like amorphous, gelatinous, black shadow blobs of like pain and trauma. And he like does this, and I'm like calling out to him, like basically telepathically. It's what it seems like in my mind. I'm like, hey, I need some help. Like, there's something happening here that I'm unable to deal with. And he makes that sound, and it's like this like spear like shoots across the room and like completely dissipates these shadow pain trauma things it was really really crazy man and if if i was hearing that story previous to that night i would have been like uh yeah that's bullshit (laughs) you know but now it's like it's impossible to like unsee so that's just an example of one of the you know of the way that the power that those guys wield and those ladies in those ceremonies, they're they're kind of just juggling everybody because everybody needs something, you know, and they're... Yeah, that that is work for
1: sure, and their perception, the subtlety of their perception is amazing.
0: Well, not only that, I mean, I saw the amount of ayahuasca that I drank compared to the amount that the shaman drank, and he probably drank five times the amount of ayahuasca that I drank, (laughs) something like that. And he's like moving from person to person, like hunkering down in front of you, like singing this song directly to you. And, you know, you're in the peak of your experience. So like the entire universe is disintegrating. He's like this light alien insectoid. Like it was <laughs> it's just, it was amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, Absolutely. my listeners have heard me probably uh, heard me describe that experience many times because it was just... So uh, potent. Um, I see that you specialize in spiritual emergencies. Can you clarify that concept for me? Just because I'm not particularly familiar with that.
1: Yeah, that's something that comes from uh, Stanislav Grof. Uh, He makes a distinction between spiritual emergence and spiritual emergency. And it's kind of through the transpersonal psychology literature. It's mentioned a number of times. Um, And so basically, uh, if if you're going through spiritual work and spiritual development, often you'll have a time where you are confronting aspects of yourself that no longer serve you at a very deep level, but maybe something that you've identified with so long you see it as as a part of you, but it no longer serves you. I mean, in psychotherapy, we're we're addressing these as well, but in spiritual work, it can be um, even more intense. Because a lot of times you're working with mystical states or deep meditative states, pranayama, you're using uh, different tools that tend to make things a little more intense. Um, and so sometimes it can be really difficult to, to determine whether this is a spiritual emergency, whether someone has gotten themselves into a crisis state where like, oh my God, now I'm, I'm untethered from the way I view the world, the way I organize the entire world. Um, that can be profoundly disorienting. Right, and if it's linked with your spirituality and your sense of integration and, and the entire the entirety of creation around you, that can be that can be a really difficult situation to process. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, the spiritual emergence and transformation and growth looks pretty much the same. Yeah. So, uh, so trying to figure out which direction that's going, and a lot of times that's based on the perception of the individual. And that's where some of that integration comes in, right? Working with people, looking at challenging some of their conceptions, helping them reframe these experiences into things that are more positive and growth oriented, those things bad, kind of like you were talking about before. That's a good example of a reframe. Like it's not good or bad, it merely is. So take this isness and, and examine because it's it's a part of your lived experience of the world, and let's dive out into that and see what we can mind out of that and we can probably get some pretty amazing material out of that i mean difficult experiences um are sometimes uh, the best features uh no i i don't want to advocate for them often but on the rare occasions they occur uh you can absolutely have a spiritual transformation from them
0: yeah for sure and you know that's kind of one thing that in the peruvian i'll say in the in the traditional or the shamanic uh lineage is uh, one of the things they say is that the medicine knows what you need um, and it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Uh, so for instance, during my experience, I'm thinking about a lot of different things. Did I take enough? Was my dose enough? Um, it, this is too intense X, Y, and Z, all these different things based on like the way that I'm kind of judging this experience. Did I get enough ayahuasca? Okay, yeah, I definitely got enough. I think I got too much ayahuasca. this is way too intense. Can we can we ratchet it down a little bit? And this voice what? is this <laughs> yeah exactly and this voice is telling me no you don't that's we know exactly what you need like we're working right now right where we need to be so stop worrying about doses and intensity levels and all this other nonsense because we are in control and you're getting what you need and you know that was kind of an overarching theme throughout the whole um, experience and I think that's probably linked to um, wanting. Uh, our innate need for control and the ego not wanting to let go and not wanting to surrender to this experience. Um, That's the ego. That's the
1: ego uh, really grasping when controls being wrested from the ego and just wrenched out of its hands. The ego thinks it's dying at that point and it panics.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, And that's unfortunately the ego. Well, it's just a subset of our overall a psychological makeup of our psyche but the ego thinks it's the end-all be-all boy it always wants to be in the driver's seat but you know you can do this gently through meditative practices you can come to a realization and a, a daily lived experience where the ego is actually in the passenger seat or maybe even in the back seat you can sort of distance yourself from that identification with the ego at the where- point it doesn't flip out like that anymore. And I think that's more ideal and something that um, there's psychedelic experiences, spiritual experiences, uh, meditative work, what have you. Um, it's, it's important. Uh, the ego isn't necessarily bad. I mean, like in yogic literature, they're often talking, like, oh, you have to kill the ego or whatever. You don't kill the ego. That's that's sort of a, um, uh, that's a wrong way of looking at it. The ego is always going to be there. It has to be there. For you to interact in this world and not be a drooling mess, right? Yeah. I'm you sorry. have to have a sense of I of self, but um, hold that sense of self lightly because that's only a portion of what makes you up. And there's some much greater, more beautiful aspects that make you up other than just this grasping sense of I that has a hard time giving up control.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. Um... So often, particularly in uh, high-dose usage, psychedelic experiences may drift into or become these full-blown mystical or religious experiences of which, of which we've kind of been discussing here. Um, mm-hmm. What role do you see these very intense religious-type or mystical-type experiences playing in a therapeutic sense?
1: Um, yeah, that's a, a bit difficult to answer because it depends on the individual And it's it's tough to generalize, but um, they are really rich lived experiences that you can mine for for material to process. And I think um, I think with the process of psychedelic integration, all about it, you know, people come to me after they've had a psychedelic experience. Obviously, um, we're in a a state where, uh, or or a, a country where these substances can only legally be Uh, given in research that's approved but people are going to do psychedelics and all sorts of stuff anyway Uh, more people so uh, if somebody uh, being licensed by the state I obviously cannot be a psychedelic guide but I can help you integrate it on the flip side Mm -hmm. so after you've had a psychedelic experience maybe a real intense experience like like both of us were talking about um, and something didn't quite um, you know you're still really wrestling with something after it uh the thing is, like in a psychedelic experience, it's a trans-rational state, right? So it transcends your rational mind. It's different from anything your rational mind could ever conceive of. Um, it, it's vastly different. So when you return to state, a lot of times people have a hard time with what they experience. Yeah. And especially if it's a more difficult experience, um, something like a... a For example, doing a ton of LSD and having your egoic consciousness totally dissolve and being at one with everything, at one with the universe, you Mm -hmm. know, that whole samadhi experience uh, that yogis talk about. Um, You can do that through LSD temporarily, uh, and it can be a terrifying experience at first as your ego is melting away. Um, but you just kind of go with it and let 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 it happen in the moment. I mean, in the psychedelic experience, Larry was talking about that. You know, don't don't question it. Just be there. Be present with it. Um, but then as you come back, like, what does that mean for you existentially? Like, there was no more you, apparently, right? Yeah. So what is this you? I mean, it, you can come up with all sorts of things. Um, you know, I, I had a patient who uh, did some uh, mushrooms, And started looking at the world in such a profoundly different way that she had ever tried to organize it before. And she found it a very disorganizing experience, and she was having problems with her daily life because um, it became very confusing and difficult for her. Uh, All of her assumptions about the world had been challenged, and she didn't know how to put those pieces back together, and it was causing her some distress. So my job then was working with her intensely to look at each one of these experiences. And, and the good thing is if you have a psychedelic integration therapist who's done psychedelics of various types, you can get a sense for where they're going because you've had a similar lived experience, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Like you can talk about ayahuasca. I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I know how that gets down deep and I'll grab some of that material and pull it up mm-hmm. uh, in the whole ancestor vibe with ayahuasca, you know? So well, for this, you know, we're able to, to um, develop a shared language and then uh, mine that for really important, very subtle details of consciousness. And it's enough material to, to work on for years, but you can, you can do some sort of triage work or some, some uh, acute work to get things sort of reintegrated so that your rational mind isn't as distressed. Sure you know your rational mind is, is okay I can handle this now I'm not going to be flipping out and keeping you up all night because I don't know how to handle it um, so it can be quite useful and, and for me that's fascinating sure absolutely
0: um is that often what you see in your work is people who are looking for uh, help integrating difficult experiences I, I, to me that would make be the only thing that would make sense why I would seek I mean I couldn't see myself being like, man, I had this really profound – I guess – well, yeah, I guess so. If you had such a beautifully or overtly profound uh, experience that it just challenged everything you thought about reality, even in a good way, you may need some help integrating that as well. I guess it just depends on the magnitude of of intensity or what it is you've undergone and that obviously is very subjective and, and varies widely from person to person
1: um, yeah, uh, but it's more than that. I, I mean, I see that sort of thing both ways, um, but also uh, I see some people who, are, who have seen some of the research and are, are experimenting with things and they want to have a therapist to, to process through some of this stuff. They're trying to sort of replicate some of the research, which, you know, not terribly advised, but if you're going to do it, get, get an uh, experienced therapist on board to help, help you out uh, in, in whatever you get yourself into. Um, Also, you know, people who are just there for self-growth, right, but have maybe never tried psychedelics, Mm -hmm. and they're hanging out with their friends, trying psychedelics for the first few times, uh, but at the same time, they want to know that they have a a bit of a safety blanket of having a therapist who can help them process through this stuff at at the same time. I actually wish that sort of thing was around when I was young and and, uh, first time to experiment with some of this stuff because... Uh, It probably would have made a a lot of difference. I would have had a lot more mileage out of everything I was trying to, trying to explore.
0: Yeah, I could have used, uh, I could have used a little bit more direction as well. Um, But, you know, I think the psychedelic, my psychedelic experiences kind of helped me find my own direction and my experimentation has always been kind of the more McKinnon style, I guess, is, you know, it's kind of silent darkness Or going it alone, I guess, has always been my preferred method. So even the experience of ayahuasca, which is somewhat communal in nature, although at the end of the drink you're alone in the madness that ensues, but there are other people present – so I think there's some validity to the kind of go go your own way model used for psychedelics, but I'm biased to that because that's the only model that I've ever known or used. Um, I actually recently had a experience with a Native American church in a Peyote circle, which is like wildly different from any other uh, from anything else I've ever experienced psychedelically because it was so like communal and crowd engaging. Um, so it was almost like I, I um, basically described it as being in like a Southern Baptist style church service in a teepee while eating psychedelic cactus. It was really uh, not. Oh. Yeah, I mean, in the aspect that the the roadman who was kind of um, mastering the ceremony was very pastoral. And like, kind of quipping with the crowd, and handing down like fifteen minute life lessons as the night went on, and um, you know the level of strangeness would vary depending on the influence of the medicine, and it, it was really cool. But it was very, uh, it was very engaging communally, and that made it for made for a very comfortable experience because you just you feel you feel like you're involved in this other thing, and it's not so just deeply wildly introspective where you're just so far down inside yourself like ayahuasca is well what was for me very very introspective um that sounds like a pretty fascinating experience it was it was cool and I, I ever since I had that one I was like man I feel like that was the perfect introduction to plant medicine ceremonial use for somebody because I mean maybe that's just because where I come from in the south I think that a lot of, like, the southern, like, church people that I grew up with would catch that vibe and be like, well, if nothing else, that was very, very interesting to be a part of. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. Like, you get that Southern Baptist kind of uh, good old boy thing going on, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to – we're going to go into, like, maybe one more question and then we're going to kind of try to stitch it up here. I have to go to work here in a few minutes. Um, sure, absolutely. So if you were to make any recommendation in this area, uh, what are some best practices that you recommend or utilize for the uh, integration of psychedelic experiences? I'm looking for maybe things like uh, breath work, yoga, exercise, diet. What, do you, what are some of the best the things that you'd recommend as best practices in that process?
1: Well, uh, every doctor ever is going to say pay attention to your diet and exercise, yeah, right? right? And this, this actually, you know, this isn't necessarily with integration, but, uh, but since you mentioned it, um, the food that you eat um, directly impacts your brain. It, it literally fuels your brain, and, and it can shift your emotions out of whack. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not keeping physically fit over time, uh, you don't feel as strong and prepared to deal with uh, anything that might provoke anxiety or depressive response. It sort of pulls you out of center if you're eating, you know, McDonald's every day or Taco Bell or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're eating food that your are only things your grandma would, <laughs> would recognize as food, uh, you know, eating clean, um, drinking plenty of water, your consciousness is going to sort work a lot more smoothly you're you're not putting road bumps in the way but as far as uh integration goes um first of all take the time you know if you're going to have a psychedelic experience take the next day off too just be gentle with yourself um you know uh when you come down have yourself some lovely snacks maybe get a massage the next day um just do something to relax and and pamper yourself and, and Love yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? That that's a big piece because you just had a non ordinary and uh um, you know, even if it's not a profound experience, you just you've just gone on a journey that most people uh, never experience. And respect it for what it is. I mean these things are sacraments. They're they're not things that should be, I don't think, you know, used every weekend to party with, although you know, Lord knows I did my went, yeah. Um but, but I also stopped in my twenties because uh for a long time because I realized that these are sacraments and they need to be respected. Um and to respect yourself as well and give yourself some space and some softness the next day to, to just, just be present with whatever you experience. Um you know go for a walk. Uh if you have a quiet space that's in nature and it's a nice day, you know uh go for a walk. Just Move and let your thoughts go. Just um, as something comes up, just experience it and let the rational mind take hold of it however it wants. Observe, be present while that's occurring. Um, you know, observe the way you're trying to make sense of these experiences because some of these experiences, you can't quite make sense of it. I mean, there's no, no physical blob of, of black vomit and trauma coming after you, right? Yeah. But you have the real experience of seeing that and experiencing that what does that mean in this world it's yeah. nothing you have to feel distressed about I, I think the main thing is just allow yourself some softness and some time and just be present
0: yeah
1: uh however that works for you i mean you know you said yoga meditation and you know any of this works meditation for some people can actually increase anxiety though right yeah uh, if you're not yeah so if you're if you're not used to if you're stuck in this uh ego-based narrative and then you go into Experiment with meditation. Sometimes people can experience anxiety because that, that ego feels like it's losing some control. Yeah. Um, but, but do whatever calls to you.
0: Yeah. Just, I, you know, I always felt like, uh, I, I feel that physical exercise is often neglected in the preparation leading up to it. I know that sometimes I'll be working out and I'll be tired and I'll want to like quit and then I'll say to myself, "Well, if you can't endure a one-hour intense workout, how are you going to endure a six to ten-hour grueling psychedelic <laughs> psychedelic experience? So you better uh, you better hang on through this hour workout, or uh, you know you better think twice the next time you go to you know gobble up some boomers or whatever." Yeah, well,
1: and and you know just just going for a long walk just go for a walk in, in a park or a trail or somewhere, or, or just around the block several times and just get into the movement of your body, be present with your body and, and let, let your mind go and just see what emerges. Um, your body holds a lot of wisdom as well. Yeah. Um, it, it can help you.
0: Sure. I think that's a good point to kind of give yourself time to be To be with what you've experienced and not to say, okay, it's time to start integrating. I got to do my yoga. I got to do my breath work and I got to do this, that, and the third. Maybe just take some time to think about it and ruminate and play with it. Stretch it out a little bit. Figure out what's going on in there. I think that's good advice.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, don't be agenda-driven. That's not, not the time
0: for it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's hard to do sometimes, but I think it would be for the best. So uh, let's go ahead and close it out here. What projects are you working on? Is there anything you'd like to promote for yourself or your businesses personally or anything that our listeners should uh, hear at the end?
1: Uh, you know, I, I work on a wide range of things. I'm very involved with political advocacy for mental health concerns at the state level, at the state capitol, being in Austin. Um, you know, I do a lot of work uh, raising money for uh, training teachers for dyslexia uh, training. Um, I, I'm involved quite a bit, but um, really with, with psychology, I'd say, you know, if you have any questions, concerns, or want to contact me, I can be contacted uh, on the web at discovery-psych.com, and uh, my phone number for my practice is area code 512 7, 7, 9, 2. you can get in touch with me there uh, you can be contacted directly by email at david at discovery
0: ok thank you so much uh, Dr. David Hill is the guest today uh, the owner of Discovery Psychological Services given some information where you can find him right there Psychedelicast thank you for joining us doctor thank you so much for doing this podcast with me it's been a pleasure speaking with you and meeting you Hopefully our paths will cross uh, IRL in real life at some point in the future. That would be really cool. Hopefully
1: so. i make it to Houston every once in a while. i got plenty of family down there, so hopefully uh, we can get some coffee or something. That would
0: be awesome. I don't make it to Austin nearly enough. I love it. Maybe one of these days I'll end up there. I've always thought that that might be where I belong. We'll see how it goes. All right. to the hip town, too, man. Enjoy it. I love it here. I love it here. No doubt about that. All right, Doctor, thank you so much. Yeah. Have a good evening, okay? Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, our interview with the magnanimous Dr. David Hill. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hill, for coming on the show. That was a very interesting chat. I'm so happy that we got to do that. And I'd love to chat with him again in the future. We'll have him back on the show one of these days. Absolutely. Um, guys, I would like to apologize to you that this episode is coming to you a week late. As I stated earlier in the episode, it's been a rough couple of weeks for me, uh, hence the lack of an episode. Not only was I dealing with my move, uh, but I was, I'm also been dealing with the unexpected, uh, conclusion of my long-term relationship, which has been tough for me as it is for anybody. Um, once again, guys, thank you so much for uh, spending time with me and for enjoying the show and engaging with the show. I really appreciate it. Send me some love. Uh, some days are, I'm very accepting and I'm very much at peace, and some days are a struggle. Some moments are a struggle. Um, for those of you who have had your heart broken before, who have been through a, a breakup or the ending of a long relationship, you may understand this. Although it's difficult to understand until you're actually undergoing the experience. This experience is very psychedelic for me. It's very, uh, it's not a far reach to um, compare it with the psychedelic experience. But I've written a piece about that, and I think I'm not going to go into that any deeper because I'll probably share that piece with you or a couple pieces in that arena with you on the next No Trip Sitter episode that you can expect next week. Let's have our quote for the episode. From a one Kilroy J. Oldster, in his book of essays entitled Dead Toad Scrolls. In any important relationship, we must always ask, should we stay or leave? Perchance the correct answer exits in the reason for hanging on and the reason for finally moving on. Perchance self-sacrifice is required. Conversely, perhaps selfishness is called for as an act of self-preservation. Thank you for joining us once again, Psychedelic Asters. And we appreciate you for joining us in prying open the third eye.